Um, hey, you know what? As I was uh, preparing for the teaching today, I just uh, got impressed that we should pray for something specific tonight. So let me pray before we dive into the teaching, okay? Uh, Jesus, uh, we're here to worship you, to study the scriptures. We want to become like you. We want to do the kinds of things that you did. And tonight is hot, and it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to kind of get into that zone of just focusing on you. But Holy Spirit, would you empower uh, our minds? Would you empower our hearts to just receive from you tonight? Jesus, may I be so bold as to ask, even as uh, it gets hotter in here, would your spirit become more and more tangible, uh, present, real, interactive with us tonight? Um, You're good, and you are able to do this. And so we say, would you, and thank you. We love you. Amen. Hey, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We are back in the book of Matthew after doing a couple weeks in the practice we call eating and drinking. At Van City, we see Jesus as our master and we as his learners or apprentices, much like an apprentice who uh, follows a master around in a trade skill, we make it our aim to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Part of the way we do this is through what we call the practices, a spiritual formation curriculum that focuses in on training and spiritual di- disciplines, as well as emotional health principles. It's a good time. When we aren't doing a practice, we are making our way line by line through the first century biography of Jesus called Matthew. So as a sort of recap, a few weeks ago, we entered into this new area of Matthew, which some scholars refer to as the Sermon on Mission. They like play on words, Sermon on the Mount. It's a Bible scholar thing. They're nerds. Don't worry about it. Um, This idea of mission doesn't necessarily mean people like sent overseas to less developed countries, although it can include that. Every disciple of Jesus is a missionary, or what that means is a sent one. To be on mission is to participate with God in his plan to renew all of creation. Jesus will do this in totality when he returns, but we get to participate in bringing snapshots and glimpses of God's healing kingdom to the here and the now. So, Jesus, seeing the crowds at the end of chapter 9, was moved by compassion and directed his disciples to pray and ask that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest field. And then the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus then empowered the disciples and sent them out to continue his work of proclaiming the kingdom. And this is the first time we have recorded the disciples being sent out to be on mission without Jesus. What did they need to do? You know, what, what would they encounter? Just these natural questions start coming up. And Jesus speaks to these questions, and his answers reverberate down through history and the mission of God's people. Jesus sets the tone of mission for his disciples to follow. It's not something to gain from financially. Jesus says that it's actually going to be dangerous, Um, and he even goes as far as to say this in verse 22 of chapter 10. You will be hated by everyone because of me cheerful. Not just unpopular, hated. And then we ended on this note in Jesus' sermon. It gets even better. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, how much more the members of his household? 
If this is what it means to be on mission for God, why would anyone do it? Why not just stay at home in comfort and relative safety? Why subject yourself to the dangers and hostility? Jesus answers these questions, so let's uh, dive in. Let's start reading in verses 26 and 27 of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do you know what the most repeated command in the entire Bible is? It is uh, not the most popular one, which is like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not the one that's second to that, which is love your neighbor as yourself. The most repeated command in the entire Bible is, do not be afraid. Jesus, right after telling his disciples that they'll be hated by a lot of people and identified with Satan, then encourages them not to be afraid. And it's understandable, uh, Jesus doesn't want a bunch of disciples who are afraid. Um, but on the other hand, there's uh, a good reason to be afraid of being hated, to, be, to being identified with Satan. But Jesus explains that there will be, in, in verse 26, this great revealing. This is kind of one of his encouragements to um, his disciples. And uh, scholar N.T. Wright says this about it. What may have looked like obstinacy or even arrogance will at last be seen as what it is, a resolute determination to follow the Lord of life wherever he leads. In other words, truth will out, justice will prevail, and those who have lived with integrity and innocence, despite what the world says about them, will be vindicated. Because of this reality, Jesus can encourage his disciples to not succumb to fear, to not remain silent. Instead, Jesus uses this image of somebody uh, climbing onto the roof and shouting out secrets for all to hear with the knowledge that those who hear this, these secrets will probably hate the person for sharing them. Jesus wants his disciples to make known his teachings, even if they are unpopular or hated because of it. Jesus isn't asking his disciples to not succumb to fear, but he is asking them to act with boldness. In our context, we live in a society that has largely shifted from being culturally Christian to largely post-Christian. It's one thing to call yourself a, a Christian. I spent over a decade working in a grocery store and uh, mostly around people who did not follow Jesus. And so when it naturally came up that I followed Jesus, um, honestly, people didn't really care. Uh, it was generally met with kind of a, an indifference, like a so what. But it's another thing to talk about the teachings of Jesus. They are, quite frankly, offensive to modern post-Christian Westerners. Why? Because Jesus makes exclusive, objective truth claims, and these truth claims challenge the fundamental presuppositions of our culture. These truth claims challenge the ideas that people just assume are true. Jesus claims to be the way the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. Nobody. So, so Jesus claims. In our society, this sort of truth claim runs counter to the narrative that humans are fundamentally good people, and if there is an afterlife, all you must do is to, you know, be a good person. 
It doesn't matter if your allegiance is to the Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or Jesus or Richard Dawkins. Just be a good person. And, you know, that sounds nice on the surface. It, it really does. Um, it's an attempt to keep the peace of various worldviews, and, and we can appreciate that attempt. We really can. Um, but it breaks down rather quickly, especially when you understand those different worldviews define what a good person is in radically different, often antithetical ways. And so while the character, character of the hippie Jesus of love is well-liked, by our society, when you actually start talking about his teachings, it is often offensive. I was talking to a coworker a couple years ago uh, at the grocery store I was working at, and he asked me about God's forgiveness and, and, and what that means. And, and I thought to myself, holy cow, what an opportunity to talk to him about the good news of Jesus. Uh, he didn't deny that he had done some wrong things in his life. He had an awareness and desire for some sort of forgiveness. But then he asked me how God could forgive a murderer. And so we chatted about that a little bit, the depth of God's forgiveness, and he was honestly offended that God would be willing to forgive people of truly horrendous things. He left that conversation uh, disgusted that God would forgive those sorts of people and he would be in the same camp as them in God's kingdom. This aversion to offending others creates a pressure on a follower of Jesus to remain silent in our culture. But Jesus doesn't seem surprised by the struggle. In fact, he expects it. And so he encourages his disciples with verse 28. Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What the heck, Jesus? Like, how is that an encouragement? Okay, so let's just take two minutes to address this verse in particular and then fit it into the bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about, all right? Um, so there's some disagreement about between scholars uh, who Jesus is saying we should fear. Is it the Father or is it Satan? And let me give you just a brief synopsis of the arguments of each and then come down on what they agree on because that's what's really important in this verse, not what they disagree on. So the NIV, the, the translation I've been reading out of, translates the word one with like a capital O, which seems to suggest it's referring to the Father. But this is not based on the Greek. Now, the word one isn't even in the Greek. It's inserted by well-meaning translators to try to clear up the meaning of the sentence in the English translation. Totally fine to do, but we need to keep that in mind when we read something like this. Scholars who think Jesus is talking about Satan point out that Jesus says this in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That word destroy is the same Greek word in Matthew 10 as in John 10. And the thief is generally identified as Satan. Also, in 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So scholars would argue that we are to fear destruction at the hands of Satan, not the Father. Okay, that's one side. 
The other side, the scholars who think that this is the Father point to the multitude of Scripture that say that the fear of the Lord is a positive thing. If you look at Psalm 34, 9, it says, Fear the Lord, you, hol- you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. And then Paul goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And on he goes. So this debate is important. It's an important topic, uh, but honestly, it's completely moot for us tonight. We can all agree that no matter who Jesus is referring to, he is warning his disciples that rejecting the way of Jesus because of fear is foolish. The ramifications of deciding to walk away from Jesus and being destroyed far outweigh the difficulty of mission. Both camps can agree on this. To put it simply, suffering on mission is better than eternal destruction. Jesus goes on to point out the character of the Father as reassurance to disciples who are struggling with the difficulty of following him. He says this in verse 29 of Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care? And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Sparrows were the cheapest and least significant animals sold uh, in the marketplace. And Jesus is making the radical claim that even the least significant animal is cared for by the Father. Some translators think that the word actually cared should be chopped off uh, the end of that sentence, and, and it should read, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father. This highlights the connotation of closeness that the father goes with the sparrow as it falls to the ground dead. It's not as though the father gets a Twitter update that says the sparrow died again. Uh, He is there, present when it happens, and he cares. Jesus then shifts the picture to us. That as his disciples, the Father knows us intimately, even the least significant part of us, the individual hairs on our head, the Father knows. And like someone in love who memorizes their beloved's features, so the Father knows even your least significant feature. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus seems to think that the Father's love and presence in your life is far better than any hardship, ridicule, scorn, or loss of relationships you may endure because of telling people about him and his teachings. And Jesus finishes uh, this little section with verses 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. For Jesus, publicly identifying yourself as his follower is really important. In fact, vital. And to disown him before others means you are in danger of destruction. The stakes are really high when it comes to mission, when it comes to telling others about Jesus and his teachings and identifying as his follower. We'll come back to this at the end of the teaching, but uh, just briefly, we know from the biographies of Jesus that what he isn't saying is that any public slip up and you'll no longer be part of God's family. He's not saying that. 
what Jesus is saying is that the deliberate choice to flatly reject Jesus and go your own way in order to avoid the hardship of discipleship and mission puts you in danger of destruction. There is no loophole for the faithful disciple of Jesus to get out of mission. How are you guys doing? You all right? Cool. Uh, There's still ice that's probably not melted back there and some water. If you need it, please hydrate yourselves. Let's keep on reading. Look down at verse 34 with me. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus uh, doesn't uh, pull up on this kind of jarring language that he's been using. Isn't Jesus supposed to be the Prince of Peace? Isn't, uh, doesn't the angel in Luke's gospel at Jesus' birth say, like, yeah, peace on earth, goodwill t- towards men? Maybe he was uh, mistaken. I don't think so. Jesus here is using hyperbolic language while alluding to Old Testament prophecy to explain the realities of his mission. Jesus is not coming to invite people to just be quote-unquote good people. He is requiring a fundamental shift in a person's identity. In Jesus' culture, the family was what defined your core identity, and and this is still the case in many uh, sections of the world that are non-Western. I have a friend from the, uh, the West African country of Gambia, um, and we also happen to have neighbors from the same country, which is crazy because it's like the tiniest country in Africa, and yet I have a friend and I have neighbors. Um, spending time around them and the community of Gambians in the Vancouver area, I used to tell other Gambians uh, about my uh, friend who was a coworker, uh, and I would say, hey, it's, it's so-and-so. I would use his last, first and last name. And they would just look at me so puzzled. I'd be like, oh, they must, uh, you know, it's, uh, he does this for work. He's going to school to do this. And they would just be looking at me so baffled. And eventually my neighbor, who, who's also Gambian, told me that in Gambia, you do not identify a person by their first and last name or by what they do at work or what they're going to school for. Uh, you identify them by their parents. My friend is known as so-and-so's son. That is how he is identified in his culture. It was similar in Jesus' context. You were known by your family. That was your core identity. And Jesus is essentially saying that to follow him necessarily puts you into conflict with anything that would be your primary identity. Jesus is saying that becoming his follower will result in tension with the things and people that is at the core of your identity. It's just natural. It's going to happen. It will force you to behave outside what is regarded as culturally acceptable, and so there will be division at the deepest levels of relationships. Scholar R.T. France puts it like this. He says, even one's own family will not be a place of refuge, but the cause of this hostility is not the disciples' own failures or lack of diplomacy. Even with the cunning of snakes, which Jesus mentioned back in verse 16, they will be unable to avoid it if they are faithful disciples because 
Its cause is Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't apologize for this either. He's not like, hey, sorry, this is how it's going to be. He takes it further. Uh, Thanks, Jesus. Not only is your core identity shifted as a disciple of Jesus, you are to put yourself in the place of public humiliation and pain. That's what the imagery of the Roman execution device called the cross signifies. The way of following Jesus means that you pick up your cross and follow him through the streets as people ridicule him, uh, as people mock him, as he hangs uh, regarded as cursed by God. And as people treat Jesus this way, you are identified with him and so are treated as well. Welcome to following Jesus. But... uh, Thankfully enough, Jesus doesn't end there. He describes the life of picking up your cross, of following him through hatred, humiliation, and shame, and ultimately death as the life worth finding. For us, this can all sound so radical and and just detached from reality, like a whole other alien world, you know, causing division in families, crucifixion, you know, this is what it looks like to be uh, partnering in God's mission to restore his creation. I mean, many of us have families that don't follow Jesus and have at most received passing comments and snide remo- remarks, if not just cool indifference to our faith. Martyrdom? Get this. The odds of uh, being struck by lightning, one in about 700,000. The odds of being martyred worldwide, one in about 506,000. So you're actually more likely to die for uh, Jesus than to be struck by lightning. But don't worry, if you live outside Africa, the odds of being martyred goes up to about one in 3.3 million. Pretty good, pretty good odds, right? I'd take those. And yet the tradition of giving up everything in order to follow Jesus is rich in Christian history. We shouldn't be ignorant of this, even if we probably won't be martyred ourselves. Throughout history, Christians have preserved accounts of people being martyred for their faith in Jesus in order to encourage and inspire others towards faithfulness to Jesus in the face of hardship. Let me introduce you to these two young moms, Perpetua and Felicitas. Perpetua and Felicitas were from modern-day Tunisia in North Africa, and around the year 200, so about 170 years after Jesus said these words, both were arrested for refusing to offer sacrifices to the Roman pantheon because of their faith in Jesus. They and their group of Christians were condemned to be executed in the local arena. Perpetua's father begged her to renounce Jesus and save herself for the sake of him, her baby daughter, and her family. She refused. She ended up weaning her daughter while in prison, while Felicitas had her baby two days before the execution. Both were mauled by animals in the arena and finally executed by Roman soldiers. We actually have, we actually have Perpetua's prison diary, and you can read it for yourself. It's, it's widely available. In particular, you know, you young moms in the room, this is part of the story of God's people. Two young moms who took seriously Jesus' words and refused to renounce him to escape suffering. This picture may uh, be familiar to you. Um, 
In 2015, 20 Egyptian Coptic Christians and one Christian from Nigeria were beheaded by ISIS in Libya. They were construction workers, kidnapped by ISIS. Uh, the ISIS captain speaking in the video which showed the brutal execution called these people men of the cross. A fascinating choice of words given the, uh, the situation. All were given the opportunity to renounce Jesus and convert to Islam. All refused and were killed. So how do, we, how do we identify with this tradition? I think the way forward for followers of Jesus who are under little to no threat of martyrdom is not to actively seek it out. So don't go to Pakistan into like a rural village and start saying Jesus is Lord. Uh, that'll probably get the job done, but let's not do that. Um, instead, uh, we should live our lives as if they are not our own. What I mean is to be willing to sacrifice, serve, and take the low positions as Jesus leads you. What if the call of Jesus means you will never own a home? What if it means you are never able to afford to go on impressive vacations? What if the call of Jesus means that you have to give up Netflix, not just for a week, but permanently? Or what if the call of Jesus means you are to remain single? Sacrificing these sorts of things is certainly not martyrdom, but they are important actions that point the trajectory of our lives into the direction of, our losing, of losing our lives to find them. And Jesus isn't done in his sermon. He has one more encouragement for his disciples. Look down with me at verse 40. Jesus said, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever wel welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. What Jesus says here is like a cool breeze on a hot night. The heaviness of what Jesus has been saying is abated by his radical generosity. You do not have to be the hero of the story, the significant disciple on the front lines where all the action is. For Jesus, he is saying that supporting other followers of Jesus will be rewarded as if doing amazing things. Jesus goes from speaking about fear, shame, and sacrifice to the word welcome. Jesus, speaking about support and hospitality, offers a beautiful reality. Not only do you receive a reward for being hospitable, you are receiving Jesus and the Father into your home. You are supporting Jesus and the Father. Jesus also did not send his disciples on mission to face the hardships alone, to be an army of one. There is an interconnectedness at work. Disciples connected to the Father, connected to Jesus' way of life, you know, the cross, and connected to one another. That's just such a beautiful, profound, rich reality when disciples of Jesus are on mission together. So to answer the questions I asked at the beginning of the teaching, why would anyone participate with God on his mission? Why not stay home in comfort and relative safety? Why subject yourself to the dangers and hostility? 
Jesus seems to be saying that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be involved with God's mission to rescue creation. A disciple of Jesus who sits at home, refusing to participate, unwilling to sacrifice, unwilling to face difficulty, may not be a disciple of Jesus's at all. Their identity is not wrapped up in Jesus. They are not picking up their cross and following Jesus. They are more concerned about finding their life than losing it. I've retold the story of our church uh, many times. Uh, I love stories. But let me do so again as a reminder of just where we're at in the life of our church. We are a church that apprentices after Jesus. And we do this in two primary ways. At the gathering, we're doing that right here, right now, but also in communities throughout the week. And our communities are centered on the three aspects. What are they? Beautiful, yeah. From the beginning, our communities have rocked what it means to be a community, to be together. We call this being a family. We eat together, we share life together, we figure out what it means for this particular group of people to be God's family. We are far from perfect, but we go for it and we find a lot of success and joy doing it. And since we started the practices, it's been almost two years, uh, we have grown to learn what it means to be with Jesus and become like Jesus. We have seen growth in, in really tremendous and beautiful ways. Again, not perfectly at all, but it's become part of who we are as a church. We apprentice Jesus together. Mission, this idea of partnering with God and what he's up to in creation, uh, has always been an area that we've struggled with. Part of the reason we shifted over to doing the practices was the admission that we needed to become more like Jesus before we could even desire to attempt to do mission. And in the last year, we've slowly begun to grow and, and go from, you know, that becoming like Jesus to doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. There's growth there. It's exciting. You know, the eating and drinking practices that, practice that we've been uh, going through was the first one we explicitly incorporated mission into. And there was some pushback we received because of it. And honestly, we really appreciated hearing where people were at and, and what they were wrestling with. And we also saw communities embrace this idea of hospitality as mission and to do it, inviting friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus to sit and have a meal. And so here we are. You know, it's, it's like the image of somebody standing at the shoreline of the ocean. Uh, we, we just have our toes dipped into the sea of mission. And we would be wise to take Jesus' warnings to, to heart as we continue in this direction as a church. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. Embracing fear, remaining silent, rejecting sacrifice, and retreating into individualism will always be temptations that we have to fight against as disciples of Jesus. Since practicing... Um, the eating and drinking, Hannah and I, my wife and I, have been talking and praying about how to be more intentionally engaged with our neighbors, and it's actually been working. Uh, we've had some really good, I, I don't know why I should be so surprised, it's working. We're trying it, and it's working. It's great. Uh, we've had some really good, substantial conversations with a few neighbors. Uh, some of uh, the neighborhood kids have become really comfortable with us and, and want to come and play with our daughter, who's like a year and a half, and it's, it's cute. 
and also really annoying because they knock on the door at inconvenient times, like when Posey is napping or I'm in my underwear. And just for the record, I do not answer the door when I'm in my underwear. Uh, and my temptation is to tell them to just stop. Stop bugging us. We'll bring Posey out to play when it's convenient for us. And then the spirit has to continually remind me, this is what you asked for, knowing and being known by your neighbors. It's inconvenient. And so I'm like, dang it. Uh, uh, I guess I'm more selfish than I was aware of. Uh, and I'm an idealist about all this mission stuff. I can't imagine what it's like if mission is not your natural disposition. God bless you. Jesus' words tonight are timely. We are just starting to learn to do one aspect of God's mission, eating with people and talking to them about Jesus. But there is a ton more for us to learn and master. There's healing the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, casting out demons, speaking truth to power, things that our master Jesus did. And following Jesus into these things is costly. It will mean we continue to give up our lives, to continue to sacrifice, to confront things in our lives that claw at our affections, things that strive to place themselves at the core of our identity, usurping the rightful place of King Jesus in our lives. It will be hard. It will probably be painful, but it will be so much better. A question for us to ask about uh, what Jesus had to say in the sermon is this. Do I believe that, uh, that Jesus' way of life leads to a life worth finding? Do I believe that when Jesus says to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, to lose our life, that's going to equal a life worth finding? If Jesus' way of life is worth it, then we will grow in sacrificing, learning more what it means to lose our lives for our sake, or for his sake, and to press into those things willingly. Choosing uh, this sort of lifestyle of self-sacrifice, choosing to lose your life for Jesus' Jesus's sake, I think will require two things for us. Firstly, it, it requires us to do this together. We cannot do this alone. This is not what Jesus intended, to just go at it alone. We need each other for support, encouragement, accountability. Being a part of God's mission forces us to confront fear and develop boldness and trust in our Father's goodness. To grow in participating God's mission means we must and will grow as God's family. It also means we must and will grow in taking on the way of life and character of our master Jesus. To participate in God's mission means to do it with our brothers and our sisters. And secondly, the difficulty of mission necessitates us to focus our attention on the character of Jesus. Why? Because the art of practicing the way of Jesus is to try, fail, learn, and try again until you master a discipline. Without understanding Jesus' character as gracious and patient, our failures will haunt us and may even derail us. And what we just read in Jesus' teachings, can we assume him to be patient and gracious with us? 
I realize that some, some of you might honestly be anxious about your walks with Jesus in light of uh, his stark words in, in this sermon. And they are stark in order to wake us up and to challenge us. Uh, challenge us. They're supposed to jar us a bit. Like retelling the stories of Perpetua, Felicitas, and the 21 Christian martyrs in Libya, these words of Jesus are meant to challenge us to lose our life in order to find it. Whether we have the opportunity to do that literally or figuratively. The very disciples Jesus was speaking the sermon on mission to would abandon him at his greatest hour of need. Peter, in particular, regarded as the lead disciple, is recorded in all four Gospels as denying Jesus publicly three times. The pressure, the shame, the fear of uh, all overcoming Peter as he publicly disassociated himself from Jesus during Jesus' trial before the religious elite. And yet, John's biography of Jesus records this incredibly moving moment after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples were back to fishing, and Jesus came to the shore where they were. Jesus prepared a meal for them, and the disciples sat there at Jesus' feet, still unsure what this meant that their rabbi had come back from the dead. Tons of uncertainty. And then this happened in John 21, starting in verse 15. Let me just read this to you guys. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And so he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus forgives Peter, giving Peter the chance to declare his love for Jesus three times, in a way canceling out the three denials and restoring Jesus. That's our king, who we acknowledge before others, the one that patiently sees our shortcomings, failures, and sin, and looks to restore us just so patiently and just so graciously. Together, let's just grasp on to Jesus and his patience and grace as we follow him on God's mission to rescue creation. Let us overcome fear and silence and shame, placing our identity firmly in King Jesus, partnering together to see God's kingdom come here in Vancouver as it is in heaven. Let's pray.